this opportunity we have to learn from you. And I pray that you would use me as an instrument in your hand, Father, that you would simply hide me behind your cross and that Jesus would be seen that we might glorify him more fully. I pray in his precious name. Amen. So we've reached the final day of 2023. How did you go? Someone's just happy to be here. Huh? How did you go? If you reflect back on the, on the year, how did you go? Did you achieve everything you wanted to achieve? Are you the same people? Yeah, there you go. One honest person in this uh, congregation. Are you the same person you were one year ago? Have you progressed as much as you would have liked? What goals did you achieve and what goals did you not achieve? And as we, we're heading into another year, a lot of people are thinking about, all right, what is it that I want this year to look like? Okay, Where did I mess up in this, in this current year? And, and what, what would I like to see? What would I like to see different about my life in the coming year? Plenty of people making plans at the moment and plenty of people planning still holidays, although some of them have already left. They've already off on the on the road, off and racing during the uh, during the holidays. But what plans have you made so far for 2024? What is it that you're expecting? So I want us to to look at this particular four verses here with respect to setting ourselves goals, because everyone does it. Everyone has in their mind, whether you actually write things down on paper or whether you um, are the sort of person who just drifts along, everyone has expectations about what they would like coming up, okay? Whether you plan for it or whether you don't, whether you're a, whether you're a person who's meticulous and, and sets everything out or whether you have a bigger picture in mind and then hope that things come together as, as, you know, as the days progress, everyone has something they'd like to see. And so that these sermon today will be the foundation of maybe a series of sermons, I think around four, that are going to help us to understand what priorities we should have when we're setting our goals. Because, um, you know, you can set yourself plenty of goals in life. And I could say, you know, I want to take out the bins 52 weeks in a year. How's that for a goal for life? No, you, most of you would say, what do you, why is that a goal? You just do it and that's it. Well, maybe if I forgot to take the bins out 20 times in a year, maybe that might be an important goal for me because maybe I don't have a good system to remember things. But most people are thinking about bigger picture stuff when we're planning. We don't think about taking out the bins or maybe cleaning the house or doing whatever. You're thinking about larger things. And so what I'd like us to do is to, to think about what is it that are the more important things. As I'm looking into a new year, what are the more important priorities for me to consider? And so this sermon will serve as the foundation for this thing. And if you look at Colossians chapter 3, I'd love for you to read this chapter over and over because there is so much in it um, to unpack. There are so many truths within it that will help you with your walk and with prioritizing things in your life. And so hopefully I'll, this, this sermon will be a blessing to you and the following ones as well. So one of the interesting things I learned in, during my work life, and I've been in different positions over the, over the years, is that I've noticed that people who make the most progress in life are the ones who are able to prioritize the important things first. Okay? They don't do all the, the, 
the, the stuff that's not important. They focus on the important things first and then the less important stuff they do after, right? Does that make sense to everyone? It's a, it's a, it's a basic thing about getting things done. But also what we learned, what I learned in life is that those who actually achieve the most in those things that are important are people who are passionate about them. If you really love that thing, you're going to put all your heart into it. You're going to, to think about it. You're going to plan for it. You're going to do it. So most of you have some passion, something that you really like to do, okay? And you'll notice that the amount of time you think about that thing and you plan for that thing and you, and you mull that thing over in your mind, you want to get better at it or you want to, um, to, to do better or you want to, you want to make it uh, grander or you want to uh, improve you will think a lot about something when you actually love that thing. When you love it and you, and you, and you um, appreciate it and you value it, you are going to then spend the time on it. Okay? Some people love their cars. Okay? Some people spend an enormous amount of time polishing their cars and keeping them nice and clean and checking them up all the time. Why? Because they value that thing. They see it has value and they want to protect it. They want to look after it. They want to, so they can enjoy it for a long time to come. Now, that is true for every part of life. You, the stuff that you don't like, the stuff that you don't care about, you are not going to spend a lot of time on. But the stuff that you do love, you will give yourself to that thing. You will give your time, your effort, your thoughts, and so on. And so as we're entering 2024... What I want to challenge us about today is what are your passions? What passions do you actually have and where are they coming from? And are they in the right order? Because sometimes the, the biggest mistakes we make in life is to put the wrong things first. Okay? For example, people who prioritise their career over their family end up regretting years down the track that they've done that. So it's important for us to have the right order of priorities and then to be passionate about those things which are valuable, not the things that are not valuable. So the passage that Praveen read for us this morning starts with a condition, okay? And that what that condition does is it forces the reader to ask themselves a question, a very important question about themselves. You notice it says, if ye be risen with Christ. If ye be risen with Christ. Now the question that comes from that condition is, am I? Am I risen with Christ? And that's probably the most important question that you can answer or you need to be able to answer in all of your life. There is no more important question that you need to have an answer for. Scriptures make that clear over and over again. It's important for us to know whether we are risen or whether we are not. And the, this passage starts with that again. If you're risen, then something can happen. And it builds within it an important assumption. And that assumption is whoever's reading this particular thing or listening to it actually can know the answer to it. They can know whether they're risen or not. And the clear implication here is that a person can actually know whether they are saved, past tense, 
and born again or whether they're not. The one who does not know the answer to this question is most likely not saved, not born again, not risen from the dead. And this distinguishes biblical Christianity, okay, God's New Testament, God's agreement with mankind from every religion in the world. Because every religion in the world doesn't know the answer to that question. Islam doesn't know the answer to that question. You can live your whole life and follow Islam all the way and you will not know and you can never answer that question and say, yes, I'm going to be in heaven one day. Hindus don't know where they're going after, after they die. You can come back as a, as a caterpillar for all they know. Which religion in the world actually says that you know where you're going? None. And that's the way you distinguish whether something is biblical and, and genuinely Christian or whether something has been morphed or changed or delivered as a man-made religion. Because every man-made religion has you working your way to heaven. Christianity is the only religion, the only faith, I should say, that actually says you can know the answer to that before you actually live your life. And so that's the question that you need to have answered this morning. And you'll notice that being risen, if you are risen with Christ, is not in the future tense. It's not saying if one day you will be risen. It's not saying that. It's saying if you're already risen with Christ. It's not as if you're waiting for something to happen in the future. No, this is something that's already happened to you. The one who has Jesus is the one who has great confidence in tomorrow because that person knows that they've already been made alive with him and nothing can separate them from him. And so that's the assumption that builds into it, that you can know the answer. The second assumption, like the first, is that in order to be risen, you were once dead. Does that make sense? So you notice it says, if you be risen, well, to be risen, like, you know, Lazarus was risen from the grave and Jesus rose from the grave, it means you were first what? Dead. So the implication here is that everyone's been dead. Okay? Everyone is dead. Spiritually dead. So no one can say they don't have to be risen. Everyone is dead. As Isaiah declares, and if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2. As I turn on some air here, because it's going to get stuck. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 tells us and defines for us what death is like. Okay? What is death? Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities, which is your sin, have separated you between, be, separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin causes separation from God, and separation from God is death because he is the source of life and when you're separated from the source of life you're dead i mean i've got some uh, 
plants at home in pots, okay? And if I don't water those pots, you know what happens to the plants? Which I found a few of them, unfortunately, in that state, dead. And that's the truth for every person in the world. If you're separated from the source of life, you are dead. And so every person, the Bible says, is spiritually dead, separated from God. Separated from God means death, both spiritually and physically. And if you're wondering what hell is, hell is to be permanently separated from him. Separated from hope, separated from his love, separated from his presence, and that is eternal death. And the final state of that person, the Bible says, which is the second death, is the lake of fire. And a lot of people which are in this world and in our generation seem to, to laugh off that particular notion of hell. But can you imagine being separated from the only source of love that there is? And to be stuck with permanent darkness away from his light and to be there regretting that you didn't accept the free gift of salvation that he had for you. That is hell. But as I look out in this congregation today, I can say with great joy and confidence, as the Apostle Paul says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know what the word quicken means? It means to be made alive again. Okay? Because a corpse is not quick at all. It doesn't go anywhere. So if you've been quickened, it means you can now move. You're alive. And so the Bible says, And you hath he quickened, hath he quickened, he's made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So before we can proceed, please, please answer this question for yourself. Because if you can't answer this question in the affirmative, in the yes, then the rest of this passage really has no use for you. It's pointless. Because you can't then follow when you're dead. You can't move. You can't walk with God. You can't follow God. You can't do anything. You can think you're doing it, but you can't. But if your answer to this question this morning is yes, then Paul immediately tells us to do something. Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth in the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. We are to seek things above. Where above? Well, it says here where Christ sits at the right hand of God. This is obviously heaven because we know that Jesus ascended into heaven. So we are to seek the things that are, that are in heaven with the central focus on that seeking the one who actually is on the throne. Not only are we to seek for those things, and seeking means I, I should spend my time looking for more and more and having more and more of it, okay? But we are to set our affection on those things as well. To set our affection on the things of heaven means to mind them. It means to think about them. It means to favour them, to approve them. It means to affectionately and eagerly want more of them. To be excited for them. To be concerned about them. 
In contrast, when it comes to things on the, in the world, the Bible says we should do the opposite. We shouldn't be excited about them. We shouldn't be eager for them. They should not take first priority for us. They are not valuable. And the Bible says that often our eyes betray us and we lose sight of what is valuable. There is nothing in this world as valuable as what we have in heaven. Nothing. If I were to offer you the whole world tomorrow, okay? If, if I could say to you tomorrow, you will be the richest person on this planet. More richer than Elon Musk, okay? But you have to trade what you have in heaven for it. There is nothing that even comes close to what you and I have in heaven now. And to, to think about that, and to think about that the people in this world are more than happy to stay with what they have and not consider what is being offered to them is an absolute tragedy. There is nothing in this world more valuable than eternal life in Jesus Christ. So when Paul commands us to set our affection on these heavenly things, it means to greatly value them. It means to see that they are so valuable that nothing else compares. So when something's valuable in my eyes, I'm going to chase that thing. I want more of it. I want to be with it. Look at what Jesus says. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. So Jesus says here, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What it is that you treasure is where your heart will be. Where your treasure is, is where your mind is going to always go. What are you thinking about most about in your life? What is it that you think about? day and night when you're lying on your bed what is it you think about what is it you concern yourself about what is it where you spend your time jesus says don't build up treasures for yourself on earth where it's all going to corrupt and decay make sure your heart is in heaven where your real treasure is did you know that love is a choice Love is a choice. It is a choice to ascribe great value to a person or a thing. And when you ascribe great value to that person or that thing, the way you then see that thing or that person is different to the way you see other things. And then the way you respond to that thing is different again. The way you treat that thing or that person is different again. And everything associated with that thing becomes valuable, becomes precious. Your perception of that person or that thing affects you in such a profound way 
that you give yourself to that thing. So that thing might advance, progress, prosper. And so what people do for things they love is they sacrifice themselves. Okay? You know, when, when God chose Israel, does the Bible say that he chose Israel as his people because they were better than all the people in the world? No. In fact, God says to them, he goes, I chose you people. He goes, but understand this, you're a stiff-necked people, hard-headed. I didn't choose you because you're greater in number, you're more powerful, you're better in any particular way. I chose you simply because I chose you. And that's true about love. You see, love is a choice. And God was perfectly free to choose, and he did. Let me give you an example. Do parents generally love their children? <laughs> yes, generally, yes. Why does a parent love their child? Yes, that's a, probably a good answer. Yes. And is it because they see themselves in that child? Because that child is a product, as, as we've just heard, of their love? Because they see that child as belonging to them and their responsibility? Is it because they see that child as an investment and they need to continually invest in? Is it because they recall their own childhood and remember all the good things and the joy they experienced growing up and now they want their children to experience those things too? Did they learn maybe this from their parents or their society that the right thing is to do is to protect and nurture their own children? Whatever these combinations is, whatever, is re whatever reasons people have to love their own children, it results in people, it results in parents putting great value on their children. And not only that, it ends up them sacrificing themselves for their children. And if you're a parent, you understand what I'm saying. They'll, they'll so much sacrifice themselves, they will work and toil and sacrifice most of their adult life in order to provide, provide a home, a food, clothes and education and protection for many, many years. In many cases, the child even grows up not even appreciating what the parents have done. And the parents don't necessarily even expect it, them to understand, but they're hoping that one day they will. And then again, we see in this world parents that don't even love their children. They don't love their children. And it shocks us. And it reveals itself in an uncaring attitude where the, where the person still loves themselves more than their children, where they don't sacrifice for their children, where there is a lack of nurture and provision for them. Let me ask you a question. How does a, how does a child recognise that it's growing up in a loving environment? How does it know that? Because they can see that they are treasured, that they're valued, and that sacrifices are made for them by their parents. There is an obvious eagerness on behalf of the parents to provide for them, to see them happy. You know, when um, I was growing up in an Italian family, having a, an Italian grandma and mum, one of, their greatest, one of their greatest joys was to see you eat. Okay? Oh, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. 
So whenever they whenever they would spend a whole lot of time cooking, especially on, on uh, special occasions, their greatest joy, you could see in their faces, was you enjoying the food that they actually made. And I think all mums are, are similar. When, you're, when you've put the effort and the love in to make food for your children, you love to see them enjoy it. Yeah. Yes. And this is the other aspect of love. Love rejoices to see the object of their love advance, be happy, be celebrated. This is the heart of every parent who rejoices to see their child do well. Isn't it? Okay. But what about God? What about God? Turn to Mark chapter 12 with me. Mark chapter 12 verse 30. Mark chapter 12 verse 30. Remember I said to you that love is a choice. Because if love wasn't a choice, then God can't command this particular thing. Mark chapter 12 verse 30 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. So, if it wasn't a choice, if it wasn't something you could obey, God wouldn't ask us to do it. But it's a choice that we have to make. God commands us to love him. I know that, and you know and understand that the Bible says that we love him only because he first loved us. And he showed so much love toward us that all, we, we can't help but reflect that love back to him. But God commands love, commands, and not the world. In order to do that, we have to really forsake and defeat the corrupted mentality of our flesh, the corrupted views in this Western world, the Hollywood notion of love as if you have no control over it, as if it somehow you fall head over heels and you have no control over that thing. The Bible's view of love is that it's a choice and that you follow that choice through because you ascribe great value to that thing. Like a parent loves a child, God says that we are to ascribe great value to him. So Paul then says, If ye then be, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So what things can we set our affection upon and seek in heaven? Have you ever read those passages about heaven? Who's looking forward to heaven here? The left-hand side is looking forward to it, but the right-hand side is not. Okay, well, you guys get to stay back after class today. You guys can go home. Yes, okay, okay. Colossians says to set your affection on things above. Yeah, the Bible tells us that the streets of heaven will be gold. Gold. Can you imagine walking along streets of gold? And I know that we, we are looking for that one day when we will plant our feet on those streets. 
How about the mansions of glory, the Bible says, that Jesus is making for us right now? Can you imagine what those places are going to be like, the Bible says? Or how about entering heaven and seeing thousands upon thousands of angels worship and glorify God? I mean, I, I can't imagine what that scene would actually look like, but I would imagine if you enjoy looking at a sunset, that would be much, much more glorious than looking at that. How about where the Bible explains that there's a crystal sea in front of God, a sea like glass, which extends, I don't know for how far, but the Apostle Paul says it's like a crystal in front of God's throne. And what about the emerald rainbow that emanates from God's throne? Have you thought about that, what that would look like? I mean, a rainbow is a beautiful thing, but can you imagine an emerald rainbow emanating from the throne of of God. And then the Bible tells us that there in front of the throne of God there are 24 um, thrones where 24 elders are sitting with crowns on their head. I'm sure they look quite glorious. And then the Bible says that these these 24 elders, rulers of whatever it is we don't even know, are going to cast they 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 fall down before God's throne. And they say, this is all for your glory. And they cast their, their, their crowns down before his feet and they say, these are yours. Or what about those four seraphims with six wings? Okay, the Bible says that they're continually around the throne of God and in the midst of the throne of God. And they cover their faces because of his absolute glory. They cover themselves for, for, um, uh, for maybe for protection. I don't know. But then with two, they're flying. Can you imagine the... the and it says they have eyes in front and eyes behind. And all they do day and night is they cry out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Can you imagine the beauty of heaven? Maybe, maybe you're looking forward to seeing the saints uh, and meeting all the saints. Maybe seeing John or, and, and maybe John the Baptist and you know, Peter. And maybe, you've got, you're, maybe you're looking forward to seeing you know, Abraham and Moses and you know, maybe Adam and... Maybe you, you, who knows who we're going to see there and who we're going to get to talk to. Which of these things are you looking forward to? Which of these things, the Bible says, are your highest pursuit? What do you have on your list of 2024? Huh? What order are we going to put them in? Well, I want you to turn to that passage where I took most of this from and I want you to see the order Okay, Revelation 4, 4, 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Because I think it will be evident to you when you read this particular chapter what it is that we are to prioritize as the most valuable. Revelation chapter 4. This is the Apostle John. He has a vision here. And it says, And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. 
And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment. And they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. The first beast was like a lion and the second beast like a calf. And the third beast had the face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about them, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honour and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him who sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I want you to look at the joy of heaven. What's the source of heaven's joy? It's not the streets of gold. They're not worried about gold bricks over there. They're not worried really about the sea of glass. They're not worried about all the other stuff. There's one focus where they get all of their joy, where all of their attention is focused, where they give themselves fully to who does everyone in heaven ascribe the highest worth to? It's the one who sits on the throne. The Lord God, the Lamb of God, who sits on the throne. Heaven ascribes such value and worth to him that they can't help but worship him, to praise him and glorify him. They get their ultimate fulfillment and joy from seeing him glorified and praised and spending time with him. They also get joy from seeing others praise and worship him as well. He is the one who we should set our affections on higher than anything else in this world or even in heaven because that is the economy of heaven. That is heaven's heart. And when the Bible says, set yourself, set your, 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 uh, seek those things which are above, set your, th your, your affection on things which are above, that's him. Because all of heaven, all the things that heaven loves is him. He alone is worthy of, of our adoration. And any loss to his glory and praise should break our hearts because these are the things that heaven cherishes above all else. You want to know the things of heaven? The things are God's glory, his holiness, his love, his grace. All of those things which make him him, we are called to magnify. It is he that we should seek because we love him so much, because we value him more than anything else that there is. 
And this is what I want us to consider deeply and honestly as we're about to enter into a new year. Does my life show that type of love for my Saviour? Is that the type of love I actually have for him? And is there evidence of that? If someone were to look at my life and compare me to someone else who they didn't know, would it actually show that I have this type of love for him? How? What would make it different than someone else who doesn't love God at all? What, because they're a nice person? Or they don't steal? Or they might go to church? Or a mosque on a, on a, on to worship? What is it that makes me different to them? Is the God who we say is the ruler and maker of all things, is he really in my life? Is he really my first priority? Is he the greatest thing I value? What evidence is there? The evidence for heaven is pretty stark. It's pretty real. They love God so much that they are constantly praising and glorifying him. The ones who had authority and had crowns on their head were throwing themselves down in front of him and throwing those crowns in front of him saying, these aren't even ours, they're yours. You, you deserve these. They are so awestruck by his majesty, his beauty, his holiness, that all they can do is to continually praise him, to glorify him, bow down to him, to want to be close to him and serve him and obey him perfectly. Now let me ask, do our lives point to a similar conclusion? Does my life reflect the same passion and love for God? Does the question I'm asking you make you uncomfortable? Please, it should. It should. It's not designed to, to make you comfortable. We're not in church to be comfortable. We're not in church to be, to be made to feel you know, good about ourselves. There's only one who we should feel good about, and that's him. Jesus had a, had a particular way of making people uncomfortable. Because he would simply pronounce the truth. He had a way of dividing people as well. Yeah, getting people upset. You know, 2,000 years ago, he divided a whole lot of people about him. And it was all about who he is. A truth that was so confronting to them that people wanted to kill him. Okay? They didn't want him even alive because of what he was saying. It's the same truth that confronts people today. And it's why people have invented cults, because they have to deny this truth by saying that he was a created being. Islam denies him by teaching that he's not the son of God and that he didn't die on the cross for the sins of the world. Much of Christendom denies him because they've put tradition before his own word. The modern-day gospel denies him because it puts mankind at the, at the middle rather than him. His own people received him not because they couldn't accept what he was saying to them. But I want you to consider Jesus' words. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Matthew 10, verse 34. 
because no normal human being speaks like this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. There is no prophet who ever spoke like this. There is no one else who demands this type of love. Matthew 10, 34 says, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and a daughter against her mother. And the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Now think of these words. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Do you understand what type of love Jesus is commanding here? He says the love that you have for your own family should not be anywhere near the love you have for him. The love you even have for your own life should not be anywhere near the love that you have for him. Because to take up your cross meant that you were headed to die. To be publicly humiliated. To go through torture. And Jesus says, if you're not willing for that, that type of love is not the type of love that, that I deserve. I mean, who is he that, that commands this type of love? In fact, he's the only one who could ever command this type of love because of who he is. Because he is God in the flesh. And only God can command people to love him. Because he is the highest value of anything in the universe and beyond. The real question for us who have been saved by his grace is whether we, as citizens of heaven now, actually love him the way he deserves to be loved. Do we value him above everything else in this world? Or do we not? When the Apostle Paul tells us that our affection on things above and not on the earth, it's really a question of how much I love him now, in this world. And how did Jesus say we demonstrate that most clearly? He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You want to see how much you love Jesus? How are you going at keeping his commandments? Do you know them? Because if you don't know them, there is zero chance you're keeping them. How eager are we to obey the one who loved us and gave himself for us? Is he the one I seek to obey with unwavering loyalty? Is he the one I seek to please above all others? Is he the one I long to be with? Is he the one I serve faithfully through my life and through the church? Do I know the same, do I show the same love for the things that he loves. If I were to scrutinize my actions, my thoughts, my words, and what I do on a daily basis, do I really love him? Or is coming to church on a Sunday 
That's my, that's my sacrifice for him. And then the rest of the week is mine. Please, let's examine ourselves. Let's examine ourselves and let's ask ourselves the honest questions about whether we actually love him or not. Because we say that we love him, but the question really is, do our actions betray us? You know, there's a, there's a, a very dangerous doctrine that's going around our, in this time. One of the most evil doctrines that we've seen flourish in, our gen- in, in this particular generation is self-worship. Self-worship. And you might say, well, how could, Pastor, how can that be self-worship in, in, the, in the Christian church? Yeah. Completely self-worship. And the reason people do things is not because they're motivated for the love of God. It's motivated for their love of themselves. They do things for themselves. And the question they have always at the back of their minds is, what am I getting out of it? Is this valuable to me as a person? And I've heard that so many times. It's, it, it, it's, it, it troubles me because I think it's only a, a, a sickness of this generation more than any other. What did I get out of church today? I mean, that phrase is so lame with respect to what the Bible teaches. It's so contrary to what the Bible teaches. It's actually scary that someone would even ask that question, what they get, what they got out of it. What's the purpose of coming to church? To see what you can extract from church and then take it away and do, do what you want with it? Is it to make us better people, is it? Is that what it is? If we're not here for God, we're not here. Don't come. Don't come. The Apostle Paul says, you know, if you're going to come to celebrate the communion and you're going to come and you're going to uh, cause problems in the church or you're going to eat before other people because you couldn't care less about other people or you're selfish, eat at home. Don't come to church for communion because you dishonour God. Now, someone who comes to church because they think they're going to come out a better person at the end of it or they think that it's going to benefit them or because they're going to please someone else because they're here, don't come. Because that's not why we're here. And I would hate to think that you're here for me. Oh, we love Pastor Frank. Pastor Frank is a fantastic preacher. Please, no. We are called to seek for what heaven seeks. We are called to set our affections on heavenly things. And all of heaven sets its affections and seeks for God. That's what it does. Remind yourself about this every single day. Because you, if you are risen with Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And you're called to live that culture here. Not the earth's culture, not the world's culture in the church. Look at Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke 12, 31. Luke 
Luke 12, 31 says, But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is there, will your heart be also. Sell, he says, he's got his disciples with him and he says, don't worry. Sell whatever you got. Don't worry. Seek those things which are above. God knows what you need. Don't stress about what's coming tomorrow. God's got that taken care of. But seek rather the kingdom of God. Seek his glory. Seek him in your life. Have more of him in your life because he's offering it to you. He gives it freely to all who would come. The message is clear. To love him so much that all of our earthly possessions and concerns and worries and cares and everything else makes everything else look like nothing. You got concerns? You got worries about tomorrow? Then know that your, your affections are not in the right place. Because if you understood how much God loves you and you love him and he's your first priority, all the other stuff that comes along is not that big of a deal. What's the worst that's going to happen to you? You could die? Is it the worst that could happen to you? Or me? So what? So what if we die? So what if they come and kill us all tomorrow? So what if they persecute us? Really? doesn't make a difference. In fact, it, does make, it makes a wonderful difference because we're going to be home. That's what the difference is going to make. So why would I fear death? If I don't fear death, why would I worry about a bill that's coming up? Why would I worry about a house or a car or, or anything else in this world? Is there really cause to be concerned? When you have Christ, you have it all. He knows what you need. Jesus told the disciples, you really want freedom? Just sell everything and, and, and put me first. I mean, they had him in front of them. But the question for us, who have a lot of possessions, because compared to every other generation before us, we are the richest by far. And we're consumed with our possessions. We have so many things. We spend so, many, so much time chasing after our possessions and looking after our possessions and we have to insure our possessions and we have to take care of them. We have to update them all the time. The more we have, the more in bondage we actually are. And we don't realise that's the course of the world. And we worry about the things that we don't have. And the things that we don't have don't make us happy. The day, who cares? Who cares if we've got haven't got a home to live in or how or clothes to wear? It doesn't matter. They're nice, but in terms of the priority list, they're nowhere near the important stuff. Please don't get caught up in the world's way of thinking. Love the Lord. Put him first in every decision you make. As you make your plans for 2024, please ask yourself, is Jesus in my plans? And I'm not saying 
you know, out, out of all the plans you make, oh, I've got Jesus over here. And so he, um, yeah, I've got, I'm going to go to church every Sunday. And I'm going to make a commitment. I'm going to go to church every Sunday this year. I'm going to make, that's my goal. I want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to serve in church. I want to grow in my knowledge of him. I'm going to study my Bible. I'm going to, I'm going to pray faithfully every day, multiple times a day. I'm going to give money to the poor. I'm going to provide whatever I can in love for my brothers and sisters. That's fantastic, right? What about the rest of your life? What about, you know, your job and your and everything else that you do? Okay, because maybe you've taken up about 10% of your time with Jesus. Huh? And the things that you want to do for God. Okay, and many people don't even do those basics properly. But then if they don't do the basics properly, there's zero chance that they're doing all the other stuff properly either. Because every, every goal we have in life, every priority we put in our life, it should have Jesus in the middle of it. More Jesus to the side. It should have Jesus in the middle. Does your job, do you glorify God in your job? Did you know you can do that? Because this passage actually explains it. It says if, you, if you're a servant and you work for, for a master, do it heartily as unto who? As unto the Lord. Whether it is you work, whether you don't work, whether you have money, whether you don't have money, whether you're paying off a house, whether you're not paying off a house, whether you're going on a holiday, whatever it is that you do, the Bible says he is to be in the middle of it. And if he's not in the middle of it, he's not central. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's not. Does your life glorify your saviour? Put him first. Put him first. Do you get excited for his kingdom? Does it excite you? Are you excited about going to heaven? What about your, his kingdom here? What about his kingdom within you? Does that excite you as well? You know, the, the many immigrants have come to Australia over the years. And I'm the, I'm the offspring of, a, of an immigrant family, okay? Um, and they've come here and they've bought certain things with them that they love. That was just them. Like Italians have bought over what? Pasta? Pizza? That's a bring, what does that bring over? Anything good? Coffee? What's that? <laughs> Don't you be quiet. So they're brought over these things which they were used to over there. And so they've grown up over here and they've settled themselves in a, in a foreign country with those things, right? Which connects them still to who they were before. And in a sense, you can look at what they brought over and you can say, well, you know what? The fact they came over and brought pasta, pizza and uh, what was the other thing? Coffee has probably benefited a lot of other people around it because a lot of people love pasta, pizza and coffee, right? Maybe too much sometimes. But what? A, so they're brought over their culture and that's true for every culture, right? That's true not just for Italians, but it's true for every culture. They're brought over their thing. It's, that's the connection they have. That's their culture. They're brought over good. Sometimes good, sometimes bad as well. But let me ask you a question. What's our culture? 
I know all of you come from different parts of the world and, you know, and from different parts of the country and have different backgrounds, but do you understand that we have a culture in common? You do, don't you? And it's the culture of heaven. That's our culture. That's what binds me to you. We are citizens of the same country. We are in a foreign land. Now, let me ask you, does your life bring the benefits to this world that's living in darkness? Does your life bring the things of heaven to this earth that will bless the people around you? Because that's what we have been called to do. And it's because we love, there are some people who just love their country. Most people, that whatever country they came from, they just still love it, right? And they'll talk about it and they'll, and they'll promote it. It's good. It's fine. But let me ask you, how excited do you get about your kingdom? The kingdom that we belong to? This is something you love to talk about. Do, you, do people see its culture in you? Do they see that? Is it as clear as seeing an Italian eating a pizza? That they recognise that, oh, that, that came from Italy, that thing over there, right? What do they recognise in our lives that makes us different to everyone else? That people say, oh, isn't that a beautiful thing? Do we promote the kingdom of God in our lives? And we should, because the Bible says in Colossians 3.3, ye are dead. We died. Where do we die? You know, the Bible says that we, we have been resurrected, you're risen. But it says at the same time, you're dead. Yeah, we died. We died, and this is what I want to close with. It says in Colossians 3.3, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Your life, my life, is hidden in him. And where is he? On a throne in heaven being worshipped. And one day, what's hidden will be revealed. We died to this world, the Bible says. We died. Our old nature was crucified on a cross with Christ, with all of its sin, with all of its failures, with all of its, all of its uh, uh, evil. God nailed that to the cross with his own son and then he gave us his own identity. And the Bible says that we are now hidden inside him. Just like, you know, going to the Noah's Ark, they went inside the ark, they were shut in, and then after the world was destroyed, it was opened up and they came out again. At the moment, we are hidden in him. Hidden. We don't see what we've done. I mean, I don't look glorified at the moment, that's for sure. But we are hidden, sealed, and safe in heaven's courts. We already belong there. That's our home. We just don't tend to live like that sometimes. Turn to Matthew 13, 44 with me. Matthew 30, 13, verse 44. Matthew 13, 44 to 46. Most of you have read this particular passage. And maybe you understand it a different way. But I might share with you a different way of understanding this passage. Matthew 13, 44 says, And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure, hid in a field, to which when a man hath found, he hideth, 
and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, most people look at this and they say, oh, that's me looking for the kingdom of heaven. And when I find it, I sell everything I have to win it. Well, it's not. Because I can't buy. There's nothing I can have. There's nothing I can sell that's of any worth to buy that. This is talking about Jesus finding us. This is about Jesus finding his church. This is about Jesus coming to the field of the world looking for a treasure and he's found it and he gives his life to win it. He gave everything. He sold everything that he had in order to win us. You're wondering who the pearl is? The pearl is his church. The pearl is you. And he sold everything he had to win you. And now that he's won you, there is no way in heaven or on earth he is ever going to lose you. Because you are more valuable to him than anything else. And the Bible says we are hidden in him. He's hidden us. Where is he hidden us? Somewhere else. He's hidden us inside himself. Right next to his heart. So this morning, if you are saved, you have so much. You have to look forward to. But I want to remind you that you are dead to this world, that your life is hidden with Christ in God, and there's going to come a day, maybe very soon, and we've got this to look forward to, when it says in verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Now let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus your life? Is he your life? Or is he an attachment to your life? Is he your life? All of our hope, our future, our peace rests in him. It's because of what he's done that we can have great confidence in. And it's because of who he is that we can be a perfect peace in him. And we have him to look forward to. But until then, live for him. Prioritize him. Put him first in everything you do. However you live, however you speak, how you eat, do all for his glory. And I'll close with the passage. Behold, and I want you to consider how much he loved you and me and how much he still loves us. Verse John 3, 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. My dear brethren, keep yourselves pure.
in 2024. God bless you.